Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, and I appreciate so much of what you said because it enables me to shorten my uh, introduction. I was going to say, most of you have noticed, I'm certain, that the world is changing and has, tr- has changed dramatically and with, with incredible speed just over the past five years. You've got not only CRT, but, uh, you know, woke doctrine, the social justice, uh, the quest for social justice, all those are connected, obviously, but then we have COVID, and who would have ever thought that the COVID crisis would actually cause as much or maybe more division in the church than all those other things. And um, I agree with what Steve said, that underlying all of this, uh, or at least connected to it also, is the, uh, the, the issues that are moral, sexual identity, the LGBTQ agenda, and all of that. Uh, and there's a reason all these things are connected. And although it looks like great changes have taken place in the past five years, the truth is the foundation for this has been being laid for more than 40 years. You have right now an entire generation of young adults who have been indoctrinated by school systems and universities that are committed to restructuring all of culture, demolishing moral standards and eliminating the social order and, frankly, undermining the biblical and spiritual foundations on which all of Western culture was originally founded. And this is not a new trend. It began really in my childhood and adolescence with the sexual revolution of the 60s. And so the, these moral issues, LGBTQ agenda, all has been rising since then as part of the sexual revolution. And one of the things that they wanted to achieve all the way back in the 1960s, and then the wheels were greased for all of that by the rapid rise of postmodern ideologies after, say, around 1989 with the fall of the Iron Curtain and the rise of postmodernism. Postmodernism, in case you're not familiar with what that is or you wouldn't know how to define it, In a nutshell, postmodernism says that we don't know and can't know anything with any kind of absolute certainty. And so the postmodernists believe it doesn't matter if nothing makes sense, because how could anything make sense in a universe where truth is unknowable? And if the one dogma that is non-negotiable is that truth is unknowable, you can't know anything for absolute sure, so you shouldn't be dogmatic about anything, then if that's the underlying conviction of all of our culture, then you have to reject scripture. And in this postmodern era, you simply cannot believe, or or it's considered socially inept and uh, backward to believe that we have access to authoritative truth that was revealed to us by God. So you reject scripture out of hand, and all of these other things fall into place. The campaign to normalize this way of thinking that you you can't really know anything for sure has been in full swing now for more, more than 40 years. And in the past five years, it has come to fruition through this flood of propaganda about social justice and and through a cascade of new laws and regulations that govern what you're supposed to think and say about homosexuality and transsexuality and and lately even pedophilia and worse, a host of other perversions. Then the COVID crisis has been capitalized on by politicians and governments 
and large corporations alike. And they now wield power by which they intend to force you and me and everyone to buy into their upside-down morality and their political beliefs. And so, as Steve said, it is past time for Christians to wake up and stand up with courage because hard times for us are coming. And this is all part and parcel of the, the whole ideology, woke ideology, which is the, the topic that we're talking about this weekend. But I want to focus on the, the moral aspect of it tonight. You are aware, perhaps, that John MacArthur recently called on pastors and other evangelical leaders across the country to declare our solidarity with churches in Canada who are now literally under the threat of criminal prosecution if they simply say what the Bible teaches about gender distinctions and sexual orientation. And, and Scripture is absolutely clear that, and in fact, these are the very words of Jesus on the subject, that he who created us from the beginning made us male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and those two shall become one flesh. That was Jesus' statement, and he's talking about one man and one woman, a husband and wife, covenanted to one another for life, and that is God's design for marriage and sexuality. It's not complex, it's not mysterious, and it's not blurry around the edges. And again, the biblical message, the biblical teaching is absolutely clear on this. Heterosexuality is God's design, and homosexuality is a heinous sin. Scripture's clear about this. Same-sex attraction, just like any heterosexual lust, is a perversion that should be mortified. It is not an identity to be embraced and celebrated. But in Canada, it is now literally illegal to say that. During the first week in December of 2021, uh, Canada passed, Canada's federal government passed what they call Bill C-4. Uh, it was passed by both the Canadian House and Senate with zero opposition, and the bill became national law on January 7th, a few weeks ago. And that bill declares, in these precise words, I'm quoting, that it is a myth to say that heterosexuality cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations or gender identities or gender expressions. It's a myth to say that, they say. And so under the amended criminal code that is currently in force in Canada, if you publicly declare that homosexuality or transgenderism are sinful perversions of God's design, you can be charged with a criminal offense. And it's considered a hate crime, so the punishment is severe. And the same kinds of policies ultimately will be adopted by various legislatures here in America, probably very soon, probably starting at the state level. And our state is sure to be one of the first that will adopt these kinds of laws. It's not that unusual, actually. As a matter of fact, Ordinances like that are already under consideration in several states and local communities. For example, Lafayette, Indiana City Council has a similar proposal on its docket right now. And these laws are being promoted as a safeguard against conversion therapy, they call it, which 
might make you think that it outlaws any attempt to, to change a person's uh, sexual orientation by psychological means. There are programs, and, and frankly, we strongly would oppose them, where psychological conditioning has been employed, usually with very cruel tactics, in, in some rather bizarre attempts to reprogram people's sexual orientation. They were doing a lot of this in the 1950s. In fact, here's a description of some of these techniques from some friends at Faith Church in Lafayette, Indiana. They do biblical counseling, and they put out a document about this. They say this, We've never practiced conversion therapy or used the term because we find this practice that was developed by the secular counseling community to be barbaric and harmful. It has traditionally included activities like shock therapy or holding a jar of ammonia under a counselee's nose, inducing nausea, vomiting, paralysis, or snapping with bands while making the person look at pornography that appeals to whatever perversion he's supposedly being cured of. But they say biblical counseling was birthed historically to counteract this kind of simplistic behaviorism. But the problem is that is not how either Canadian law or the proposal in Lafayette defines conversion therapy. In fact, here are the exact words from Canada's Bill C. They say that they define conversion therapy this way. Conversion therapy, I'm quoting exactly, conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, C, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, D, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, E, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or F, repress or reduce a person's gender expression so that it does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Notice it all goes one way. It's illegal to try to persuade somebody who wants to change genders that that's the wrong thing, and it's illegal to try to uh, uh, persuade a homosexual person that that approach to sexuality is wrong. And in an official document that was published by the Government of Canada, the question is raised, what is conversion therapy? And here verbatim is the answer the Canadian federal government gives. Quote, conversion therapy refers to interventions designed to change the sexual orientation of bisexual, gay, and lesbian individuals to heterosexual, or to change a person's gender identity to cisgender. It also refers to interventions designed to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction, or non-heterosexual sexual behavior. Conversion therapy can take many forms, including counseling, behavioral modification, and talk therapy, and may be offered by professionals, religious officials, or laypersons. Now again, notice all of those definitions go only one way. There is no prohibition against grooming or coaching young people to become homosexual or transgender. You can do that. The underlying agenda of these laws is clear, and one of the more ominous features of all of this is that the Canadian government clearly wants to shape and put boundaries around the message churches can proclaim. Bill C-4 especially names and expressly 
singles out religious persons, church officials, and lay people alike, and it forbids them to do anything to repress or reduce, again, I'm quoting exactly, to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or non-heterosexual sexual behavior. You're not permitted even to say a word against homosexuality. And again, that is the law in force right now in Canada. It is a serious criminal offense. It's a federal crime to portray homosexual desire or gay behavior as a sin that needs to be mortified. To say it in other words, Canadian law now forbids Canadian Christians from declaring what the Bible plainly says. It's coming here as well. And make no mistake, pastors are almost certainly going to jail for this in Canada. And furthermore, attempts will be made by Canadian authorities to close churches that don't comply with these rules. We've already seen the prelude to this because of the COVID crisis, where pastors were put in jail and churches were literally fenced off and closed. So we need to face this situation squarely because, again, the same kinds of laws are coming to America as well. Governments worldwide are instituting similar policies designed not merely to silence those who understand that it's a sin to pervert God's design for marriage and procreation, but, but more than that, the pressure is on us to affirm and celebrate homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, and the entire alphabet of LGBTQRSTU perversions. And many people who self-identify as evangelicals, both leaders and lay people, have already begun to yield to that pressure. Many have chosen simply to stay silent about the issue, and as Steve said, that's not really an option. Others have tried to modify or to retrofit the Christian stance on sex and marriage in order to accommodate the notion that a person can be both gay and Christian at the same time. And over the past decade, there's, a, there's been a, a shift that has swept through the evangelical movement and the opinion that currently dominates, I think, the, the large evangelical movement is that homosexual desire is not inherently sinful as long as you don't act on it. Most evangelicals, that's the policy they follow now. And the argument is that some people seem to be same-sex attracted from birth, and so we must conclude, regardless of what Scripture says, that this is God's design for those people. And in the wake of this sea change of attitude towards homosexuality, a number of ostensibly religious organizations have sprung up that are devoted to the idea of legitimizing same-sex attraction among Christians. There are several minor evangelical Christian celebrities who now self-identify as same-sex attracted. There are faculty members at evangelical universities and seminaries. There are popular authors, musicians, and people who write for once-respected evangelical organizations like the Gospel Coalition who hold this view and advocate this view. And it has more or less become the norm for evangelicals to believe that it's okay for a Christian to define his or her sexual orientation with terms like same-sex attracted. And there are lots of self-styled evangelicals who openly maintain 
mutual romantic attachments to members of the same sex. And that is commonly considered to be not merely okay, but something to glory in as long as the same-sex attracted couple remain celibate or claim to be. And one organization that is supposedly devoted to biblical ministry among same-sex attracted people promotes a kind of covenanted partnership between homosexuals where two men or two women live together as if they were married, but they agree to remain celibate. In fact, let me read to you from a website that proposes that very arrangement. Here's how they describe it. Quote, question, what is a same-sex celibate partnership? Answer, a same-sex celibate partnership is an intimate coupling between two same-sex attracted or gay-identifying individuals, bonded for life in a way similar to marriage, but of course minus the sex. It's a life of devotion in which the united individuals become family, unquote. And you know how that will go. These ideas are a full frontal assault on the vital symbolism of marriage, which is a union, which pictures a union, the union between Christ and his church. And that goes not only for this absurd notion of gay celibate partnerships, but also for gay marriage, feminist notions of egalitarianism, and every other departure from the idea of a lifelong monogamous relationship of a man who leaves his father and mother in order to be joined to his wife. That's the biblical terminology. And Ephesians 5.23 goes on to say the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church. And Ephesians 5.32 says that marriage itself, by God's design, is a reference to Christ and the church. We can't redefine it. We have no right to do that. Any corruption of marriage or sexuality is an attack on the whole point of the gospel. It's that simple. And so this is no minor issue. It's not a matter where we can remain silent and let the culture just march unchallenged into deeper and darker levels of perversion. And don't be naive. That's coming too. all of the same arguments that have been used to legitimize same-sex attraction are already being used to try to dignify pedophilia. No less than USA Today published an article just on January 11th, a few weeks ago, in which they said this, that pedophilia is, quote, misunderstood and a condition that is determined in the womb. In other words, you're born that way. There's nothing you can do about it. So let's go easy on these folks. And there are also people who want to make bestiality acceptable. They've already signaled that they're next, and they have already they will use those same arguments. Frankly, think about it. If it works for homosexuality, there's no perversion that it won't work for. And so there's no limit to the abominations human society is going to attempt to normalize once the salt of evangelical Christianity loses its savor and the light of gospel truth is hid under a bushel. But at the moment, evangelicals, including many evangelicals, evangelical thought leaders who I'm sure you would generally respect, are beginning to adopt more and more of the LGBTQ language and arguments 
both of the two most recent presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention have claimed that the Bible whispers about sexual sin while it shouts about materialism and greed. And you're going to see in the passage I want to look at tonight that both types of sin are condemned by Scripture, emphatically. But statements like that, that God whispers about sexual sin but shouts about greed, that is, that is a deliberate in, intent to downplay the gravity of popular sexual perversions like homosexuality and transgenderism. And, and what they are doing is attempting to browbeat other evangelicals into silence regarding these evils that are, that are currently popular in secular culture. It's an embarrassment to them as evangelicals to be outside the mainstream of popular culture. And sadly, the vast majority of evangelicals easily buy into that kind of thinking because they've been raised in churches where the goal was to blend into culture as much as possible. And so they simply flow with the drift of culture. And so there are very few signs that the evangelical movement as we know it today is going to unite in any kind of strong opposition to the LBGTQ lobby. And and on the contrary, the level of gay acceptance among evangelicals is increasing noticeably every year because evangelicals for decades have been committed to following the trends of secular culture rather than confronting them and declaring biblical truth. But again, Scripture is clear on these things. Homosexuality is an expression uh, of sinful perversion. It's against God's design. You simply cannot be a Christian and embrace the cravings of homosexual lust at the same time. You may be tempted with it. You may be assaulted with temptations, but you can't embrace it and self-identify, make it part of your identity, and be a Christian at the same time. There, There quite simply is no such thing as a gay Christian. Homosexual desires are sins to be mortified, not character qualities to be celebrated and affirmed. To call myself a same-sex attracted Christian would be the same thing as identifying myself as a a Christian man who constantly lusts after women he's not married to. It's a disgusting idea. And one of the key passages where Scripture makes this clear is 1 Corinthians 6, and that's where I want to go with you tonight. See, I didn't get to shorten my introduction after all. We're just now in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6. We're looking at three verses, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. And here's some context. Paul is dealing with a list of very serious problems that were plaguing the Corinthian church. There was disunity and factionalism. People were treating the Lord's table like the celebration of the Roman god Bacchus, the pagan god of wine. They were literally getting drunk at the Lord's table. There was gross sin in their midst. One guy had an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. Paul deals with that in chapter 5. And he scolds the Corinthians there in chapter 5 for not excommunicating that guy. Chapter 5 ends with this exhortation. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And while he is on this subject of judging those who are within the church, he scolds them for going outside the church to settle their disputes with one another. And that's where our chapter starts. 
chapter 6, verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Evidently, they were bringing lawsuits against one another in secular courts, fellow church members. And in the first eight verses, Paul chastises them for letting the unrighteous and not the saints make moral judgments for them. And he says, ultimately, if you bring a lawsuit against a fellow believer in a secular court, you have already lost the most important part of your case. So he says, verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? And on the contrary, he says, verse 8, if you sue a fellow Christian, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Even if you're suing because you're absolutely convinced that you are in the right, Paul says you put yourself in the wrong against your brother by taking that course of action with him. It's not a Christian way of settling differences within the church. And that brings us then to our passage. And it may seem like Paul makes an abrupt shift in topics here, but I don't think so. I think what he has to say in our three verses tells us what he is thinking about what a serious sin it is for a Christian to take another believer to court. Because in the first place, a a lawsuit in a secular court puts a moral judgment between two Christians in the hands of a judge who in all likelihood is unrighteous, verse 1. And in the second place, it wrongs and defrauds the whole church. To sue a fellow Christian is itself unrighteous. That's his point. And so in our text, Paul is in effect giving us a a double-edged reason for why it's better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. One, because the unrighteous judge in whose hands you put this moral decision isn't even a citizen of the kingdom you profess loyalty to. And two, because if your own life is dominated by unrighteousness of any kind, you're probably outside the kingdom as well, he says. And so the truth he wants them to understand applies to all sins, not just frivolous lawsuits. And to make that point clear, he gives a list of typical Corinthian sins. These were sins that dominated Corinthian society. Notice that sexual perversions and homosexuality in particular dominate the list. So here's our text, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. I'll read from the Legacy Standard Bible. I just got my copy this week. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, Paul's point here is clear. This is not complex. He's saying if the character qualities and the lifestyle that define you are unrighteous, if if your desires and your deeds and your disposition are utterly devoted to the pursuit of some self-serving sin, and especially if you self-identify with a label that signifies some wicked lust or some evil pattern of life, 
then you're not a redeemed person, he says, and, and you should not deceive yourself into, into believing that you are. Actually, I don't know how this text could state all of that any more clearly than it does. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that if you ever once committed any of these sins, you're forever doomed. He's not giving a list of unpardonable sins. There aren't unpardonable sins except for one very specific thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew 12. These are not unpardonable sins. That's not what he's saying. It doesn't mean that you're guilty of an unpardonable evil so that you can never enter God's kingdom if some sinful lust seems to stalk you constantly, waging war against your soul. The context destroys that idea, and you'll see that when we get to verse 11. Uh, In fact, let me quote John Calvin on this. He says, by the unrighteous here, as for example, adulterers and thieves and covetous and revilers, he means those who do not repent of their sins, but who obstinately persist in them. The truth is, every one of us struggles with evil desires. Paul himself confesses in Romans 7 that he waged a lifelong battle against He says, coveting of every kind. That's the exact expression he uses in Romans 7, verse 8. And he uses a Greek term, epithumia, that actually speaks of lust. It's the same word he uses in Ephesians 2, verse 3, where he says, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. And, of course, the apostle is not saying that he now lives in lust in Romans 7, He's not living in those lusts, but he does still have to wage constant war against them. And he says, this is a battle, in Romans 7, he says, this is a battle that he knows he will fight until he is finally set free from the body of this death. And so I say again, all of our evil desires are sins to be mortified. We're not picking on homosexuality here. Same-sex attraction, which is a desire for what God forbids, is not a neutral quality to be embraced and celebrated. And it's no better than heterosexual lust for a woman that you're not married to. So it shouldn't be worn as a badge of identity. And as I survey these three verses, I notice three truths about sin and its remedy that arise from this text that I want to point out to you. And the first is about sin and delusion. Sin and delusion. Notice, all our sins breed self-deception. Verse 9, do you not know? Do not be deceived. He's telling them to get their thinking straight. Sin has messed up their minds. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's giving them here a basic truth which is taught clearly in the Old Testament, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And in fact, the very first Psalm ends with this, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, The way of the wicked will perish. And here he reminds them of that truth and says, don't be deceived about this. So, who or what had deceived these people in the Corinthian church? In this case, it was their own sin. And it is a fact 
that all sin has this delusional quality. Sin hoodwinks us, and in the process, it hardens us. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. The Apostle Paul, recalling how indulging in unbridled lust almost cost him his soul. Back in Romans 7, again, verse 11, he says, Sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. In Ephesians 4.22, he speaks of the lusts of deceit. All sin, lust included, maybe lust especially, is inherently deceptive. It twists our minds. It clouds the truth for us. That means when we sin, we're inviting self-deception. Don't deceive yourself into enthroning your sin in your life, and don't take doctrinal counsel from someone who is trying to justify his own sin. People who live under the bondage of sin while they profess to be Christians are delusional. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Now, let me say this while we're on the subject. The fact that sin is so deceptive is a truth that should provoke more compassion than judgmentalism for people outside the church. People who don't even profess to be Christians. They are lost and blind and spiritually, their vision is clouded and they are headed for eternal judgment. And what they need to hear from us is the truth of the gospel, not merely the condemnation of the law. But they do need to hear the law first. But you understand, I hope, that the law is a message of utter irreversible doom for sinners. Galatians 3.10 quotes Deuteronomy 27.26. In order to make that very point, it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. His point there, Paul writing to the Galatians, is to say, The law shows no mercy to sinners. The gospel, on the other hand, is full of mercy for sinners. But make no mistake, the gospel has no mercy for sin. Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the law doesn't show mercy to sin, it shows mercy to sinners. And so Paul says, don't let sin deceive you. Don't live under the delusion that you can indulge in a promiscuous life of sin and rest confident that you're saved because you've made some profession of faith or whatever. People who are abandoned to sin, people whose true character is defined by sin, people who self-identify by their own sinful desires, people given over to a sinful lifestyle, or people whose consciences are untroubled when wicked desires arise from within. Such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no other way to interpret this passage. But your own sin will tell you otherwise. Sin is inherently deceptive because it wants mastery over us. Scripture's full of warnings about this. In fact, it's interesting how often the Bible personifies sin as a trickster and a usurper. From the start of Scripture, Genesis 4-7, the Lord says to, to Cain, 
Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, sin is not really a personal force, obviously, but it is inherently deceptive. It clouds our judgment, it confuses our moral sense, and it sears our consciences, and even warps our belief systems. We speak of this as the noetic effect of sin. And what that means in layman's terms is that sin makes us stupid. If you want to say that and sound theologically informed, just talk about the noetic effects of sin. Sin shrouds us in delusions. Paul says, do not be deceived. The current level of widespread delusion about these subjects is, uh, especially among today's evangelicals and evangelical leaders, is really quite remarkable. And it vividly shows the dangers of following the culture rather than submitting to what God's word says. That's what we're going to be hear from us all weekend. Both Daryl and I are going to talk about the dangers of following the culture rather than submitting to the authority of God's word. It has become stylish in evangelical circles for people to identify themselves by their grossest besetting sins. And this is unheard of in church history. It is a gross insanity, frankly, that undermines sanctification. To call yourself a same-sex attracted Christian, it's a denial of what this passage teaches. So that's the first thing to notice in this passage with regard to sin and delusion. All of our sins breed self-deception. Here's a second truth, and this one is about sin and destruction. And the lesson here is that all of our sins are exceedingly sinful. Sin, any kind of sin, if tolerated, will utterly and eternally ruin you. Verses 9 and 10, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a catalog, isn't it? And notice, he names 10 specific sins, and they fall into two categories. Some of these are sexual sins, and some of them are social sins. This is not an exhaustive list of damning sins, obviously. There are, these are representative sins that span the whole moral law as the moral law is revealed to us in the Ten Commandments. But Paul here is writing to an audience of mostly Gentile former pagans. And so he doesn't use the language of the Decalogue. Instead, he gives a list here of sins that were basically staples in in Corinthian culture. And notice, he makes no effort to soften the truth or accommodate the drift of that culture. He's not trying to... This is the polar opposite of the seeker-sensitive approach, you know? And think about it. Homosexuality was just as prevalent, maybe even more so, in Corinthian society as it is in our society today. And it's clear, isn't it, that Paul is not trying to contextualize his message here to make it more palatable to a society that was in love with their own sexual perversions. He's not trying to soften it for them. And also notice this. These two verses read like a short list of the characteristic sins of 21st century Hollywood culture, don't they? This is not just Corinth. This is us. 
These are all debasing and degrading sins. These are fleshly sins of all of them have to do with wicked self-gratification. And Paul's point here is not to make all these sins equivalent, nor is he trying to rank them from the greater sins to the lesser. You know, we know that some sins are worse than others. It's one of the points Paul makes about homosexuality in Romans 1 when he talks about the gradual descent of humanity into grosser forms of evil. He says, even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature, as if he sees something uncommonly wicked or profoundly aberrant in the L category of the LGBTQ alphabet. It's like the worst thing you can think of. So I don't think the apostle in our passage is trying to make a false equivalency, you know, treating all of these sins that he names as if they're equally grotesque. That's not the point. The ten sins he names in our passage are not equally vile transgressions. I doubt anyone really believes that in the hierarchy of evil, an act of, idol- uh, an act of adultery is, is worse than a you know, fleeting whisper of greed, for example. They're just all self-serving sins of different, different you know, gravity. And yet, as Paul says in Romans 7, all sin is exceedingly sinful. That fleeting whisper of greed is no minor thing. Any of these sins, if you embrace them and allow them to dominate you, will not only keep you out of the kingdom, but they'll all send you to hell. That's his point. Every person who revels in sin, whether it's a respectable vice or a gross evil, that person will suffer eternal condemnation under the wrath of God. Revelation 21, verse 8, from the merely cowardly and unbelieving to those who are notoriously abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, he says, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, all sin is exceedingly sinful. It's true, they're not all equal, but they are all bad, really bad. So ten sins are listed here. As I said, they fall into two broad categories. The five sins named in verse 9 are sexual perversions. The other five, named in verse 10, are social vices. And again, all ten of these were evils that dominated and characterized the culture of the entire city of Corinth. And notice, in fact, Paul gives a very similar list of the evils of Corinth just one chapter earlier than this in 1 Corinthians 5.11. It's a shortened list where he says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. And notice there he left out thievery, but he pretty much covers all the same categories. He groups all the sexual sins under an immoral person. And his point in chapter 5 is that these are the sins that defined that culture. And so he says, verses 9 through, 11, 9 through 10 in chapter 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but, he says, I did not mean at all, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. So in other words, he's saying treat worldly sinners with compassion and win them to Christ. 
But those sins are not to be tolerated in the church. Paul says, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is pursuing a lifestyle that's colored by those sins. Chapter 5, verse 13, those who are outside, God judges. But within the fellowship of believers, you need to remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And that is in perfect harmony with what he's, the whole point he's making here, that sin has no rightful place in the life of a believer. And again, Paul is not suggesting that Christians are sinless. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But on the other hand, 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if you're walking in darkness, which means you're continually given over to the pursuit of sin or you are passively tolerating an unbroken pattern of sin in your life, you have no right to any kind of assurance that you are a true Christian. John and Paul are in perfect agreement here, both apostles. So look at the five kinds of sin he names in verse 9. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, and homosexuals. If you're looking at the New American Standard Bible, the first one is translated as fornicators. Both the English Standard Version and the Legacy Standard Bible have the sexually immoral. The Greek term there is pornos. Pornos, the same word that is at the root of the English term pornography. But it is a, in Greek usage, it's a broad expression that covers every kind of sexual debauchery. And frankly, it would apply to everything from sins of the imagination, pornography, even cybersex, to abominations that are too gross to name. And Paul, Paul could have simply let that term stand, and he wouldn't have needed to single out adulterers and effeminate and homosexuals, because all of those evils are included in that term pornos. But he, he may have a specific case, or maybe multiple cases in mind, and so he names these gender-twisting sins by name. And I'm glad he does, because it applies so well to our situation today. And by the way, in case you're wondering, idolatry is listed in this context because gross sexual sins of all kinds were woven into the Corinthian brands of idolatry. The plethora of temples in that town were staffed by temple prostitutes and engaging in fornication or even grosser activities with these temple prostitutes was deemed a sacred act of worship in that pagan culture. So the idolatry he has in mind here in Corinth had, had you know, huge sexual overtones. The Greek historian Strabo, writing in the year 2 BC, wrote that the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was so rich that it employed more than a thousand prostitutes, both men and women. I'm quoting him exactly there. Well, actually, it's translated from his Greek, but you get it. So Corinthian idolatry was literally a form of illicit sexual gratification, and apparently there were people in and around the Corinthian church who were prepared to accept the claim that this is normal and natural and morally neutral behavior. They had, after all, shown this sort of arrogant tolerance uh, for this 
one church member's incestuous relationship, if they weren't bothered by that, which Paul says would have been a gross sin even to most secular minds, Paul is debunking the notion that you can tolerate, much less engage in, this kind of contact, uh, conduct and still claim to be a believer. Now, obviously, married people who indulge in any kind of fornication are adulterers, and so Paul lists that. The next two words cover every kind of homosexual behavior. The word translated effeminate is the Greek word malakoi, and it's a word that speaks of softness, and it's used only in two contexts in Scripture. The other one is a statement that's found in both Matthew and Luke, where Jesus is defending John the Baptist, and he asks, what did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Malakoi? Malakoi clothing? And, and there, as here, the word clearly has a negative connotation. Quote Calvin again, he says that this term refers to those who, quote, advertise their unchastity by blandishments of speech, by lightness of gesture and apparel, and by other allurements. He's talking about people who are manifestly gay in their behavior and dress. The Malakoi were men who would purposely adopt feminine mannerisms and speech patterns and gestures and clothing and temperaments. You know the type. Effeminate is the perfect translation, really, but understand that when this word was used in ancient Greek sources, it didn't merely refer to effeminate mannerisms or lisping speech. The malakoi were homosexuals who took the female sexual part with other homosexuals. And so the pairing of these words, effeminate and homosexuals, is purposefully de designed to include both partners in the homosexual behavior. Paul says you can't give yourself to that sin or that lifestyle and profess to be a Christian. Those who do live that way can't inherit the kingdom of God, he says. But then in verse 10, he also includes some of the standard social transgressions that gave Corinthian culture its reputation. Thievery, greed, drunkenness, and swindling are self-explanatory. The expression revilers refers to people who use their words in a coarse or abusive way, either to rail against their neighbors with insults or to indulge in hurtful tail-bearing or, or deliberate lying in order to damage another person's reputation or cursing your neighbor or even whispering gossips who purposefully vilify other people's characters. This sin is broad enough to cover all those sins of the tongue, revilers. And incidentally, this list of social sins in verse 10 suggests that Paul is still thinking of the evils that arise from the lawsuit or lawsuits that someone in this church had brought against fellow believers in a secular court because thievery and greed and reviling and swindling are all characteristics of the litigious person. In any case, this whole group of sins you find in verse 10 covers every kind of unrighteousness that is designed to inflict injury on other people. And drunkenness is in the mix because, because it's one of the common means people use to drown out the feelings of guilt when, when they do these things. So Corinth was full of all of these evils, 
But these are sins that have no place in the church. Ephesians 5.3, immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints. But I also need to add that these five sins named in verse 10 are not just petty sins against one's neighbor. Like sexual sins, these are also sins of fleshly self-indulgence. Sins that no Christian should ever be willing to live with. For Christians, the biblical standard is clear. Philippians 1, verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And Paul restates the whole point of our text in Ephesians 5, verse 5, for this you know with certainty, he says, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. So again, there's no such thing as a homosexual Christian or a person who's a, a full-time con artist or a chronic drunkard. That guy's not a Christian either. You're not a Christian unless you have renounced those sins and are routinely mortifying those desires. In the words of Colossians 3, 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So the message of Scripture is clear and it's consistent, isn't it? No sin, least of all homosexuality and gender bending, none of these sins are ever to be sanctioned or normalized or given any kind of artificial validity in the life of the Christian. And the fact is, all sin is exceedingly sinful, and these hard-driving, habit-forming, character-shaping lifestyle sins are especially enslaving. A life completely given over to any of these sins is not a redeemed life, and that, once more, is the central point of this passage. So we've seen a lesson about sin and delusion, namely that all of our sins breed self-deception. We've seen, we've seen a lesson about sin and destruction, that all of our sins are exceedingly sinful. Now, third, here's a lesson in this passage about sin and deliverance. And the message here is that all of our sins can be cleansed and forgiven. He always comes back to the gospel. When the Apostle Paul says, neither fornicators nor idolaters nor any of these people have any part in the kingdom of God, if you think he's giving a list of unpardonable sins or even gross sins that require some kind of extra penance, you miss his point completely. And in fact, his point here is that these are the very kinds of sin that the Corinthians had been delivered from. These are forgivable sins. But they are sins to be repented of. They cannot be adopted as badges of the Christian's identity. Verse 11, such were some of you. But now you are washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is the gospel promise. As I said at the beginning, the gospel is utterly intolerant of sin, but it's full of mercy for sinners. Notice, Paul doesn't cite some good work that the redeemed members of the Corinthian assembly did in order to atone for their sins. He doesn't commend them for pulling themselves out of the miry clay of a corrupt culture. They certainly have no basis to be self-congratulatory. He's reminding them what Christ has done for them. And he says so expressly. It's not that they cleanse themselves. 
but that they were washed and sanctified and justified in Christ's name through the agency of the Holy Spirit. I read some commentaries about this verse where the commentator interpreted the washing as the ritual of baptism, which of course is absurd. Baptism is symbolic. It doesn't literally cleanse anything. It symbolizes a cleansing that is done by the Holy Spirit with the water of the word. It's a heart cleansing, which is something no sinner can do for himself. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's the same washing that's spoken of in our text, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Same thing. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And by the way, Paul is not listing three separate events in verse 11. Washing and sanctification speak of exactly the same thing. And in this context, Paul includes justification, which is simply another aspect of what happens in that first moment of faith. Our sins are forgiven. Our consciences are cleansed. That's the washing. And in that same moment, all at once, we are, for the very first time in our lives, set free from the enslavement of sin, set apart from sin, sanctified. Not perfectly, but The process of sanctification begins in that moment, and the righteousness of Christ covers us like a robe, giving our cleansed hearts a spotless covering of perfect righteousness. That is justification. So notice, washed, sanctified, justified. Those verbs are all past tense here. Calvin, again, he says, these three terms express one and the same thing. And Calvin goes on to clarify that he doesn't mean to suggest that those Three technical theological terms are synonymous because they aren't. In fact, it's very important not to confound justification and sanctification. But what we're saying here is that Paul is pointing to all of the work of divine grace and that takes place in that singular moment when you pass from death unto life, when the Lord brings us up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and sets our feet upon a rock, to borrow from the 40th Psalm, salvation means deliverance and cleansing from sin. And God doesn't grant us new life and then leave us unchanged and helpless to wallow in our sin. He gives us a new heart with new desires, with new ambitions and new appetites, and especially a new love for Christ a yearning to be like him and to share in his glory. And it doesn't mean that all the old appetites and old habits of the flesh immediately pass away. They don't. I've sometimes compared the process of sanctification to the putting off the old self. It's like the removal of Lazarus's grave clothes. When Jesus raised him from the dead, you know, he waddled out to the mouth of the tomb, still dressed like a mummy. And Jesus had to say to them, unbind him and let, let him go. And the removal of those grave clothes is a good picture of what the process of sanctification is all about. Yes, as our text says, you were sanctified, past tense. In other words, you were liberated, you were set free from sin, but you're still being sanctified as you are further separated from sin and gradually conformed to the image of Christ from glory to glory. That is the natural and expected process of salvation. 
We aren't immediately and perfectly sanctified, but that's the process that begins at the moment of sanctification. I'm going to skip some of what I prepared because I don't want to go too long here, but let me sum up. Although this passage issues a harsh and terrifying warning against all forms of self-indulgent sin and this sort of sexual evil in particular, it culminates in the wonderful good news of God's mercy towards the vilest kind of sinners. In a group this size, in a culture like ours, I have no doubt that there are people in this very room whose lives are either secretly or perhaps even openly characterized by gross sin that you pursue compulsively, and the weight of guilt hangs around you like a millstone chained to your neck. There is forgiveness and there is cleansing. 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 Timothy 1.5, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Titus 2.11-14, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That is the most visible, notable, reliable characteristic of every genuine believer. He is zealous for good deeds. He doesn't try to justify his evil lusts. He doesn't, certainly doesn't identify himself by whatever perversion might strongly tempt him. But our identity, indeed, our very life is in Christ, whom we lay hold of by faith. And Paul follows up those words to Titus by saying, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And that goes for even if the government makes it a law for you that makes it illegal for you to say that. It includes every attempt by earthly governments to silence the truth from local ordinances to federal laws, Acts 14, 19, and 20, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And in the very next chapter, Acts 5, 29, we must obey God rather than men. That is our commission. And if it means we land in prison for speaking the truth, may God grant us a fruitful prison ministry. Let's pray. Father, this passage is convicting to all of us. It reminds us of our utter dependence on your grace because there have been far too many times when we succumb to the lures and temptations of this world or or our own flesh or the temptations of the devil. May sin never define who we are. May Christ always be our first love. Kindle in us a fiery passion for righteousness and give us the strength of will and the spiritual resolve to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to flee the devil, and to renounce this world 
and conform us, we pray, to the perfect likeness of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.